Welcome again to another Investor Investor podcast. Today we have Victor Christou, who's CEO of Cambridge Innovation Capital. Victor, welcome. Could you just describe something about your education and background and what led you into the role you have today? Yeah, thank you, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be here. I think what you're trying to do is it's a really exciting initiative and it's important that people have a voice, especially from venture, to have a voice to entrepreneurs and to people who are thinking about creating a business to just explain what our industry is about and how we get into it. I think my background slightly unconventional, I, I guess, from an investor perspective, especially a UK investor perspective. I originally was a career academic. I'd always thought about being an academic and uh, went to university, first person from my family to go to university, actually, so had no real expectation of what it was going to be like. I um, studied chemistry at Imperial College in London. And you grew up in Liverpool, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Liverpool, moved to the Midlands, just outside Stratford-on-Avon, when I went to school. I was actually, <laughs> funny story, my background, so I, I born and raised in chip shops. My dad's a Greek Cypriot, first generation immigrant, moved over in the 50s, got married, met my mum in Wall's sausage factory. Not really a sort of a, a blue chip background to get into sort of venture capital. But I guess entrepreneurship and running businesses ran through the family. So my dad had a chip shop, which he ran with his brother in Liverpool. I was actually due to be born in London, in the Whittington Hospital in North London. But we moved, I think, weeks before I was about to be born to Liverpool to take an entrepreneurial opportunity in running a chip shop. So grew up in Liverpool and then moved when I was 12. And we, we grew up in inner city Liverpool. So I remember moving to the country, as I perceived it, when I was 12. And I'd never seen a cow. Really? And I remember you hear moved, that story. But <laughs> moved out to this village. It was a big village, but um, we lived right on the outskirts and there was fields at the bottom. And uh, like, I couldn't believe that we were living in the country coming from inner city Liverpool. So we went to school and then went to university, studied chemistry, hated the first year, actually really, really hated university, didn't feel like I fitted in and almost didn't go back. But I thought, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll stick it out because I'm, I'm there and it, it can't be all that bad. And then I relaxed. I thought university was something, you know, where you had to work hard and, you know, be really studious. And actually, I thought, well, if I'm going to spend the next three years in university, I should actually enjoy myself. So I started to enjoy myself a bit more at the end of the first year. I moved out shared a house with an old school friend and just had much more fun and I did much better. And that was a lesson in life I took with me, actually. I think you can be overly scholastic about things, whereas if you actually take time to take a step back and look at the big picture, then I think you get a, a much more holistic view and end up doing better. So I took that as a life lesson, I guess, with me ever since, ever since I was 19. So I went to university studied chemistry, did pretty well, and then went straight from my undergraduate degree to a PhD, which I did again at Imperial College in London, and then moved to a postdoc in UC Berkeley, so just near San Francisco, postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley, in the chemistry department for three years. What were you concentrating on there? So it's interesting. So I'm a synthetic organometallic chemist by training. So that sounds very high tech. It means I'm a cook, right? A chef. So I spend my life at the bench in the chemistry lab making things, making things that no one had ever imagined before, never been made before. 
demonstrating, I guess, scientific principles, but on things that people hadn't imagined. So you dream up an idea of a molecule you want to make, that you want to demonstrate something specific, and then go to work in the lab and try and come up with a recipe that means you can make the material, and then you characterize the material, and that's kind of really exciting thing to do. Just kind of get into the lab and mix chemicals together and, you know, then you grow crystals and then you characterize those crystals and you figure out what it is you've actually made and made some really exciting and interesting things in the lab. And I, I thought the academic career was the way I was going to go. So when I finished my postdoc in Berkeley, which would have been 1993, moved to Oxford, got a job in Oxford. So I was a Royal Society University Research Fellow in Oxford. So a pretty prestigious fellowship, moved straight out of California into Oxford, all set for an academic career, but I found it slightly, I guess, stultifying in a way. So it could do a lot of research, but the environment didn't suit me. And so just talking to some friends, figured out that my research could be quite applied. So my research when I went to Oxford was related to understanding how the shape and structure of a molecule affects its electronic properties. And so with some friends of mine from college, when I moved into Oxford, I got a, also got a research fellowship in a college. And friends I'd made at that time, one of whom had gone off to work in a management consultancy, another one had gone off to work in an investment bank. And we all got together, and this was 97, and I guess entrepreneurship and spinning out businesses was in vogue. And so we created a spin-out business based on my research that worked in the field of organic light-emitting diodes. So OLEDs are, are Which now, are quite well known yeah, now in mobile phones and other devices, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, commonplace. So I think a number of mobile phone manufacturers use OLEDs in their displays. You can buy an OLED TV. I was there right at the start of that, inventing materials that now ship in some of those products. Um, so we created a spin-out business that we took through the University of Oxford with four of us, actually, which was a lesson in life. So me being an academic and my academic collaborator in the engineering department, and then two friends, one of whom was an investment banker and the other guy a management consultant, all left our jobs. The guys who were gainfully employed left their jobs. (laughs) And we set up my business, Opsys, to make OLEDs based on the IP we'd filed at the university. Created it in 97, funded initially by friends and family. How much did you raise? Initially... £200,000. So effectively what we did was sponsor a couple of postdoctoral research students in my research group, or one in my group and one in the engineering group, who were going to make devices. So we raised a couple hundred thousand pounds from the guy who worked in the investment bank. But that doesn't replace the salaries of an investment banker and a management consultant for very long, does it? (laughs) They must have taken a big decrease in salary. They said goodbye to those salaries and I knew that they weren't going to get that kind of compensation for a very long time in a startup business. But equity was what drove us. And I think equity is still an important aspect of incentivizing people and the lessons I learned about structuring the business then are still true today. I think you need, in a very early stage business, you can't hope to pay high quality people the kind of salaries they're going to get elsewhere, but they've got to be on board for the excitement and the vision. And I think having a vision is really, really important. And we may come onto it later about you know, what we look for now mm. at Cambridge Innovation in entrepreneurs. But I think vision and changing the world 
or having a view as to how the world can be a better place is really important for me anyway when I'm thinking about an investment. And then understanding the entrepreneur and understanding how they're going to get there and have they got the drive to get there is also important. But we had IP, a relatively young team. So we were all late 20s, very, very early 30s when we set the business up. And Oxford University had a share. Yeah, so we span out through Oxford, well, as was ISIS Innovation at the time. So Oxford University Innovation now. What share did they take to start with? 1997 was a pivotal moment in the history of Oxford University Innovation because it was the start of a new regime under Tim Cook. And we were the first business that Tim span out of Oxford. I can't actually remember exactly, but it's something like 50-50 or something like that. Oh, really? As much as that? Something that would not be dreamed of nowadays? Yeah, so it it was interesting because I think the boot was definitely on the university's foot in those days and it may not have been actually it may have been a third a third a third so it might have been a third to the founders a third to the investors and a third to the university but it it was something like that we ended up as entrepreneurs owning something like a third of the business i think then but we created the business outside the university first we created it actually over the summer holidays summer holidays 1997 in the college library was where we wrote the business plan and created the company, dreamt up the name and, and everything. So created the business, then we raised a very small amount of seed funds. Then we raised institutional seed funds. So we had investors, so Questa, which is a venture capital firm. Active. It was. Or it, yeah, it's not, I don't think it's around anymore, yeah, yeah. but um, it was very active and very, very supportive. And was this during 98 or 99? 98, I think we raised something like two to three million. Okay. And then we grew. We then sponsored research in my research labs to start with. And then we had our own, we got our own facility just on the outskirts of Oxford in the Begbrook Science Park, where the university bought the old Johnson Massey Cookson labs and refurbished it. And again, we, I feel like we, I did, I've done a lot of firsts in my life. So we were the first business onto that site. And at one stage, we actually anticipated buying the whole site and then leasing it out. So As a startup, Yeah, we would have become landlords. Grand plan. <laughs> <laughs> we thought that was foolish. And then as soon as we knew that the university was interested in bidding on the site, it just became a non-consideration. Anyway, we grew the business, grew it to 70 people. And over a five-year period, raised substantial capital, actually. And I think grew to be one of the world's leading businesses in that space. But there's also a lesson we learned in that time because it's just interesting thinking about developing technologies, especially developing technologies in mobile industries or display industries, which are largely driven by Asian manufacturers. So we had some great IP and had some insights and we filed as much IP as we could on the research and we picked up as much IP as we could as well. So whenever IP became available or we were aware of IP, either through the University of Oxford or elsewhere, we bought it because I think it's a very erratic journey growing a business and you have to be spontaneous and agile and think quite broadly. So I think you have to be dogmatic in following your belief, but also opportunistic in trying to maximise opportunity and maximise possibilities for the business because we pivoted the business from one set of materials that we were researching to another set that we picked up actually from another research group and we rolled it all into Opsys and it was actually that rolling that other technology in which we thought about previously but someone else had been working on 
and it just opportunistically we picked up the IP but that actually proved to be the value driver in the business and then there was a value destroying element of the business too oh, right. which is a, a lesson actually because we had it's all about getting the business model clear so as I was saying earlier on we had this view that we were going to manufacture we felt there was more value in manufacturing materials and displays than licensing than licensing the IP and I think that's always true but there's, there's a cost element associated with that because when you control more of the value chain it just costs more to get there and I think by becoming vertically integrated and manufacturing displays which is actually what we set up to do you own the display portion but actually it costs you a huge amount of capital so we raised, I don't know, 1999 going into 2000, we probably raised 20 million from a whole bunch of larger venture capital firms and private equity firms and I guess bulge bracket banks as well. Mm. So we raised a substantial amount of capital that we used to build a production line. And we had to build a production line because when we we're speaking to Asian manufacturers, they wanted to know that they could manufacture copy the displays line, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah exactly copy yeah. the line and manufacture on their fab plants using our technologies so there's a capital intensity to the business that we hadn't anticipated originally but which became essential as we went down that route we sold the business in 2002 so we raised capital right through the dot-com boom and bust and saw the exuberance of investors who didn't really understand technology. And it was a lesson for me in due diligence processes because, you know, you can go through the due diligence process and actually not manage to navigate that diligence process quite easily when you're being diligenced by people who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, so it's a really important aspect of what we do today. And the lessons I learned on the other end of being diligenced yes. are helpful to me when you we diligence people. didn't mind at the time because the capital was available. Yeah, because we always thought that we knew we had something really interesting and exciting. And we thought, well, we were legitimate, right? We knew what we had was good and there was nothing to hide. And so we were very open to a due diligence process. Unlike Theranos, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, exactly. So I think one of the things that we look for when we invest is transparency because jumping ahead now, you know, businesses I've been involved in, I've seen children in families in which we've invested in the, one of the parents. Those children grow up in the time that we're invested in these businesses. Yeah. So you're on a journey that lasts many, many years. So there's no point trying to hide stuff because ultimately it'll come to the fore. And I think so transparency and honesty is a really important aspect of what we do. Anyway, yeah, we built the business and we sold it ultimately to Cambridge Display Technologies. I was going to mention CDT because, of yeah. course, they were on a similar journey over here in Cambridge, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, so they were slightly ahead of us and they were always the bigger player, but we felt we had better technology. And we, we got into an interesting patent dispute with them. So it wasn't a dispute, it was just a discussion. And it was actually quite a technical discussion about what a polymer consists of. What the definition of a yeah, polymer. Yeah, <laughs> we had one view and they had another. And in the end, our view prevailed, I'd like to think. <laughs> and um, as a result, they bought the IP in the business. And that was the lesson for me, actually, as a founder, in that we'd raised all this capital to build the production line. And the, the value creation part of the business was the IP. Mm. And we'd have all made much, much more money had we not raised this capital because we were diluted and subordinated. Did it sell for more than the post money of the last round? We went through the dot-com boom and bust, oh, okay. and so we zigzagged all over yeah. the place. 
the final investors made capital. The founders didn't make very much money at all. But it was all as a result of us taking dilutive capital mm. through this capital intensity. So the final investors had the preference of some form, yeah, I guess. So, yeah, there were all kinds of preference stacks yes. in there. So it's a lesson about preference stacks so as well. Those founders you've been on this five-year journey learnt a lot, but not replaced the salary that your mates had yeah, <laughs> foregone, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but we all learnt a huge amount. Yeah. Everyone's gone on to be very successful in different walks of life. But for me, it was a lesson that... There is value in IP if you can really build up a defensive IP platform. Yes. And it's that IP, actually, that is now being used in these... In Samsung, for yeah. instance, use OLED, don't they? Yeah. yeah. So you're suddenly unemployed, I guess. Or yeah, was, uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite that simple. So crafty as ever, I guess, what we did, we sold the license to the technology. And that was in 2002. And only a couple of weeks ago, I was contacted by the university about royalty payments. So I think there are, you know... There's still, still money floating yeah, around, is there? Still, okay. Yeah, because patent life is 20-some yeah, years, yeah, so, yeah. so there's still royalty payments go on. And because CDT years. was then sold on to a Japanese company, wasn't Sumita- it? A yeah. uh, Korean company, okay, Sumitomo so, yeah. Chemical. Okay. So. so we sell the IP, but we take a back licence to the IP for non-display-related technologies. Using the line you've already built? Yeah, so we sold the line on at cost to someone else. Okay. But the real value returner in that business was the IP. Then we took a back licence for the IP and all kinds of materials-related business technologies and created a a spin-in business rather than a spin-out business. So we had this technology that we based in a company called Arborescent, and Arborescent is still going today. Arbor, that sounds like to do with trees. Trees. So this gets into the technicalities of the discussion about polymer versus patent. So our materials were dendromers, which are these snowflake-shaped like twigs on a branch or yeah exactly so they look like twigs or how snowflakes grow as they start to crystallize and the debate was whether a a dendroma these discrete but multiple repeating units within the discrete group was a polymer or a monomer or a molecule and in the end we decided and uh, cbt agreed that it was a not a polymer so ambiguous. I think it's a separate class of materials, but it's not a polymer. But the back license allowed you to carry on and yes. Yeah, so the back the license then allowed us to develop a business in non-display related technologies. And so the, the business today is looking at sensors and detectors for things like explosives. So it's Sixteen years later, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's still, still going, yeah. and it's still got it's got commercial. You got some work. shares in it, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But I chose to leave because that five years was actually a defining period in my life that we were running the business because I decided at that point, having been a career academic, that I didn't want to be a career academic. It's much more exciting, much more exciting to be in a startup and to run my own business and create something new. And and, and much as I like doing research in university and teaching, there's no comparison. And so I transitioned out of the university to CTO role in the business. And the same was true of Arborescent. But I was very aware of what I didn't know. And so I didn't want to go down the same route again in Opsis, being sort of driven to do nothing but the science, because that's, in a startup, that's all you have time for. The, the, the five years we spent creating that business, not one of the founders took a holiday. We just worked all the time to try and get the business. You weren't married at that point? No, all of us were single. One guy actually got married. Sad story, really. In the run-up to selling the business was the run-up to his wedding. So I remember the day of his wedding negotiating the sales terms for Opsis 
you know, and when you're selling a business and you're a founder in the business, nothing is more important than making sure that that business... So he was on the phone in the aisle almost. We were all, I remember we were all getting dressed, all getting changed into our suits and things for the wedding, trying to negotiate the deal with the lawyers. Crazy stuff, but, yeah. but that's what it... No does. honeymoon. We sold the business, yeah, during his honeymoon. And I think that marked his marriage, actually. Oh, dear. But, um, <laughs> yeah. So the four founders stuck together the yeah, whole way through. Yeah, we stuck together Good. right yeah. the way through, and we're still in touch with each yeah. other today. Good. But we trusted each other. Best piece of advice I ever got, actually, was because the university took an equity position in the business, the university appointed someone to the board. And we actually suggested who it was that they should appoint because we wanted someone friendly. And it was another friend of ours from college who had been one of... He was, I think he was the first non-founding partner at the consultancy LEK. And so he was a, had been a strategic consultant but was now a, an academic at the university but was also at the same college that we were all from. And... The best piece of advice that you gave to us, when you go into a business, be clear with each other what you want to get out at the end so that when someone achieves it, because you may all have different agendas and when you achieve it, one person might decide that they're out. And if they've been clear about what it would take to get them out at the point at which you go in, there's no surprises and no one's let anyone else down. So we all knew what each of us wanted to get out. In terms of the capital sum at the end of it. It's not necessarily capital driven. It might be, you know, we want to achieve a landmark business or I want to make a certain amount of money or I just want to have the experience of going through a startup. As long as you're all clear Mm. where you want to jump off the bus, then no one can complain when you actually do. That will change, won't it? Depending how the bus is driven, how how erratically it's driven, how many stop starts there are, how many potholes it falls through, etc. That's absolutely right. And you keep coming back to this point about transparency and honesty. And I think as long as everyone's transparent and honest with each other and there are no surprises... On the journey, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've seen teams of four become three fairly commonly, so yeah. for that It's reason. quite difficult to keep the team together coherently and different people drifted in and out at different periods and were more or less committed, but we're all had this vision going through where we were. So you sold out, you worked with the company for a while? A a year, but I was clear that I didn't know enough about business. So I went to business school after I created the the business. Yeah, I went to Stanford. So I was in the graduate school of business at Stanford as a Sloan fellow, which was an amazing experience for me. And it was particularly useful as a result of having created a business as a technologist and not really understood it and not really understood business to be honest and so I went to business school thinking that I'd learn a lot about accounts and corporate finance and and they were all the courses I wanted to take and I was dead set on doing that and economics and things I'd never done before in my life and I learned all of that but the most important things I learned in Stanford were actually things I discounted initially so One of the big things about Stanford, and I chose Stanford because it's the heart of venture capital, so it's based right in the centre of Silicon Valley, right where all the venture capitalists are. I knew we'd be getting lots of venture capital lectures. The most transformative classes I took were interpersonal classes, so all to do with interpersonal relationships and how you deal with people, which I thought I was pretty good at, but actually it's interesting being exposed to your own vulnerabilities and blind spots. I think that was a, a really It was almost useful... like a counselling course. Or... Yeah, well, so yeah. they're very clear, actually. Yeah. They're very clear that it's not counselling, yeah. but it's all about interpersonal dynamics. Mm. So it's not about you dealing with your own... Demons. Issues, or yeah, whatever. demons. Yeah. Yeah. It's about understanding your impact on other people and how other people impact you. 
and it was a revelation. Mm. Oh yeah, I still I take that with me today because that's really important learning when you're running a business and trying to interact with people with lots of different needs and lots of different character types. That was the most valuable thing I took away from Stanford. Thank you for listening to part one of Victor Christie's Invested Investor podcast. It was great to hear some valuable tips from an accomplished entrepreneur, including Victor's advice that when you go into business, be clear with what you all want to achieve. Each founder may have a different endpoint. Part two will follow on from Victor's business school experience and on to his investment career. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <laughs>